It's Thursday, October 12th, and this is the 1909, the state news' weekly podcast featuring our reporters talking about the news. I'm your host, Alex Walters. This week, I'm first joined by culture reporter Jack Williams to talk about three recent holidays building community and remembrance amongst indigenous students. Then, campus reporter Willow Simmons will join us to talk about what's been going on with MSU student government. And finally, I'll have what may be the final update in the years-long fight to bring back MSU's swim and dive teams. So with that, let's start the show. All right. Our first guest is here. You're a first-timer on the 1909. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, Jack Williams. I'm new at the State News this year. I'm on general assignments on the Culture Desk, and yeah. Yeah, and you've sort of, you know, your general assignment, but you've found um, a little niche doing a couple stories about some of these indigenous student organizations here at Michigan State, so I wanted to have you on. You know, Monday was a federal holiday. Some know it as Columbus Day. Others know it by a different name. Do you want to talk about that sort of movement to modify this holiday? Yeah, so I think, um, I don't know the exact year. I want to say it was 2018, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, is I mean, it started really way before that. I think even as early as the 90s, some states started switching over to um, Indigenous Peoples Day rather mm-hmm. than Columbus Day. But I, I think the real push was um, within like the past decade or so. And I think that was because more people um, sort of started to notice that what what we're celebrating um, is, you know, obviously what we're taught in school, but that isn't necessarily the truth of um, mm-hmm. what may have happened um, in history. And, you know, the truth is Columbus wasn't the greatest guy. Um, yeah. And the other truth is that uh, indigenous people's cultural, cultural, culture sorry, and land has sort of been stolen throughout the years. And... Um, I think it was a way of sort of just kind of taking that back because that wasn't taught in the schools mm-hmm. for a lot of people. And um, so that that's sort of the reason for the change of the holiday. And that's sort of, you know, I think becoming, like you said, more well-known. There's a growing number of states and even smaller municipalities that are changing the sort of official distinction of the holiday from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, but in the last month, you've covered a couple more holidays that, you know, I, I had no idea about. Um, some student groups that have used different days for celebration or remembrance. Do you want to tell me about Michigan Indian Day and Orange Shirt Day? Yeah, so Michigan Indian Day was, uh, or is, a um, obviously a Michigan holiday, mm-hmm. um, which it's, it's very similar to um, Indigenous Peoples Day, but, you know, it's just sort of meant to call attention to the contributions and significance of, you know, natives and what they've brought to the state of Michigan. Um, and one of those people, you know, uh, I got to talk to. Um, mm-hmm. His name was Joe Webster. Um, He's the the founder, I think, right of yeah, this holiday. Yeah, so he um he started the holiday back in the eighties, I want to mm-hmm. say, or seventies, uh, um, and he's very involved with the community. The um the cultural heritage center in Okemos that I went to, mm-hmm. um, he's um he's very active in that community. But uh, he's a very interesting guy. He um, I didn't get to meet him while covering the uh, Michigan Indian Day story because. He just uh, he didn't show up, but for the Orange Shirt Day story, I, I did get to meet him. He's a very interesting guy. He worked for the governor. Mm. Um, he was in the Air Force. You know, he's been all over the country. Um, so yeah, he was a very interesting person to talk to. And he's connected with some of these student groups, putting together sort of these celebrations that you got a chance to go to. And yeah, I mean, he just sort of helps with the um, mm-hmm. Cultural Heritage Center and um, a lot of the uh, indigenous student organizations at MSU uh, host a lot of their events through that um, center. So yeah. he is, yeah, he's, he's very involved with the community. And what about Orange Shirt Day? Yeah, so Orange Shirt Day is another holiday. Um, before, 
it's it's the uh, weekend after Michigan Indian Day, mm-hmm. so it was before um, Indigenous Peoples Day. But it is meant to sort of remember and recognize the boarding schools that took place throughout the United States. Which you know, if you don't um, if you don't know, we're um, back in the as early as like the 1800s and as late as like the 1980s, um, they would send uh, Indigenous children to you know, boarding schools to try mm-hmm. and quote unquote assimilate them or, you know, make them less native, you know, get them out of touch with their roots, mm-hmm. uh, their cultural roots and make them more, you know, European and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, and a lot of them, there, there was a lot of abuse that took place and a lot of uh, kids actually didn't return. And one, one thing I was, I actually found out about was there was a, um, there was a report done by the Department of the Interior where they mm-hmm. um, found found all these graves of like children uh, throughout the country, and they estimated that it was around 500 that they found, but they estimated they were going to find a lot more, and I think they, they have been finding a lot more throughout the past couple of years. And this is something that, you know, you talk about the last school closing in, in, in what, the 1970s? Uh, it was uh, 1983, and it actually, I don't know if this was the last one in the country, but this was Just the last one in Michigan. This was in Michigan, yeah. Yeah, and so it's like, you know, we talk about this in a historical context, but it really is so much closer to us than that. Uh, and, and you talk to some people who felt like even more locally at MSU, this is uh, a close history of, you know, discrimination. Yeah, he talked about just sort of before um, Stanley, um, they didn't took really office in 2019. Yeah, or yeah, around that time. Um, and he didn't have, he was talking about how a lot of the native organizations at MSU did not have really much of a say in what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really went as far to say as like fear and intimidation was how things mm-hmm. were run. Um, and he, he even talked about how like, you know, if people did stick their head up, they would just kind of be like, you know, they, they would cut funding or, you know, some mm-hmm. people would lose their jobs. But it, it wasn't until Sta- uh, Stanley came into office, he said that... Um, people began to sort of look at them more, or Stanley began to look at them more, and he would meet with them, I think, uh, at least once a month. Uh, and he said um, President Woodruff has actually uh, continued that. And That's continued under her. Sort yeah, of she's continued to meet with them and all that. So he, he has said it's gotten better, but and this is something I sort of found throughout every person I talked to. They yeah. all said it has been, they've seen a push for all, all things you know indigenous in the last few years, but there is still a lot of... of way to go especially when you consider the damage that was done and how like irreversible it may seem Mm -hmm. um so yeah well and even you know more broadly i think another part of your story that uh, i found fascinating was this idea that the whole kind of land grant promise right of msu that we talk about Mm -hmm. so much of you know msu is given this land by the state um you know and it's used for education and for research and it's going to better the whole state by giving these universities this land but that's so complicated when you become aware that like that land was you know kind of stolen in the first place before it was granted. I mean, what's that like for the people that you talk to? Yeah, um, I, I did talk. I did sort of ask about um, you know MSU being a land grant university, and you know obviously MSU does recognize it now. It is it's on their website. You know they recognize like yes, we are on stolen land. Um, but I think for all these like student organizations, mm-hmm. that's like for, sort of the reason for coming together. Uh, it's the idea that there there is no that they're they're aware that there's such a small population of indigenous students on mm-hmm. MSU's campus, and I think it was uh, it was actually both um, Neely Bardwell and Roxy Sprawl who run the uh, NASO, which is the Native American Indigenous Student Organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both kind of talked about how they um, Native American students tend to have the lowest graduation rates, the lowest enrollment rates, and 
uh, of any like racial or ethnic group on campus. So I think that's sort of the reason for coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's it's that idea that th- it, this is on you know a land grant. This is a land grant university, and they have had so much of their culture taken away. And that's sort of their reason for for coming together to sort of keep it alive and have that space for them. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for coming on the show. You can no read problem, you know, both of Jack's stories and I'm sure uh, many more in the future on statenews.com. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. All right, my next guest is here and you're, again, another new first-timer on the 1909. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello, hi. My name is Willow Simons. I'm a reporter on the campus desk at the State News. Uh, this is my first semester at the State News and at MSU in general, um, but this isn't my first student newspaper, so I definitely had to get, you know, adjusted to a lot of stuff here, but I'm having a really good time. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so you have been, you've sort of taken over writing about ASMSU, the undergraduate student government here at Michigan State. You know, we haven't talked about that yet on this, uh, this season, this year of the 1909, so, you know, before we get into some of the specifics, you've been doing great coverage. Do you want to just talk about, you know, what is ASMSU, who's sort of in the leadership this year, that kind of thing? Yes, um, ASMSU stands for Associated Students of Michigan State University, um, which is the student government here at MSU. Uh, you could think of it like a high school student council, except it mm. has much more power than a high school student council. Um, I don't know if many students realize how much um, ASMSU, um, like what they do and their bills have, like impact-wise on their you know school lives. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is also um, not just help, like helping students, but also um, related to keeping like um, the board of trustees and a lot of the faculty um, related stuff. Like, I don't want to say in check, like they're like you know. I mean, it's sort of advisory. You know, yes, it's kind of they'll definitely. pass these bills saying this is what the students think. They might not have yes. power over them, but yeah, it's giving the students the voice. I think without ASMSU, um, students would. Ha- wouldn't have uh, be able to have as much effect on what like you know the board of trustees and what yeah. a lot of um, you know the adult decisions happening around on campus. So I yeah. do think it's good that their existence, you know, that they exist. Well, and a, uh, I think a great example of that is recently you've been writing about these presidential search bills that they've passed, sort of voicing um, concerns about some comments that we've talked about a couple times now here on the 1909. For those of you, for whatever reason, if you're not recurring listeners. Um, you know, Dennis Denno, he's an MSU trustee, he's also chairing the presidential search. He told us a couple weeks ago that, you know, the search committee is giving serious consideration to, to non-academic candidates, you know, people, he said, from the business world or with his words were a very strong military background. Uh, and he also said that it's possible that um, he could pick a candidate, the board of trustees could pick a candidate that's not endorsed by the presidential search committee. So essentially, you know, he was saying we're gonna take those recommendations strongly we can kind of pick whoever we want. And ASMSU, this is one of the issues they've weighed in on. Do you want to talk about sort of that, those discussions, that bill? Yes. On Thursday, so October 4th, I believe, um, ASMSU presented Bill 6027, which mm-hmm. was advocating for um, the faculty search committee when, you know, presenting their decisions to the Board of Trustees. So ASMSU was um, on the uh, faculty search committee side on this. They wanted someone with a strong academic background, Mm -hmm. not someone necessarily with a business background or a military background. And they also didn't want like an arbitrary deadline, like, you know, the Thanksgiving deadline. They wanted to avoid that too. I should say that's another thing that's sort of been in conflict is Denno's been very steadfast behind this idea of 
you know, pick a president by Thanksgiving. And some groups have said, you know, well, let's just take our time to find the best person. It doesn't matter when. Yeah, especially as um, uh, interim president Teresa Woodruff has agreed to be the interim until they get the president mm-hmm. so that the uh, transfer of leadership will be as smooth as smooth as possible. So, um, yeah, ASMSU, they want to ensure that we get the best possible person, not just whoever, you know, is the most convenient to sign on. Um, so, and the bill not only you know supported that, but they also wanted um, ASMSU, the two students representatives for the mm-hmm. search uh, faculty search committee. They wanted um, their approval to be in consideration too. Um, the president of ASMSU, Eli- Emily Hoyampa, she is one of those two students. Yeah. So um, she was even saying at the general assembly on Thursday, she was even saying like, "Oh, if uh, this bill passes, this is something else I can do for all of you." Um, yeah, that's what she said to the General Assembly. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, you know, I think this is a great example of sort of what ASMSU, you know, obviously it's advisory, but like you said, they do have um, a lot of power just in the weight that their word carries. Because on Sunday, you know, Deno released a statement um, saying, basically walking it back, or part of it, walking part of it back, saying, you know, I've listened to the community, I'm committing to pick a candidate who's approved by the Presidential Search Committee. Um, which, you know, after ASMSU and Faculty Senate and the deans and vice provosts and all these sort of advisory groups, you can kind of see their impact there. Uh, but ASMSU isn't just, you know, passing bills. They also kind of are there to give students an opportunity to hear, I guess, presentations about various topics, ask questions about things going on at the university. And you attended a couple of those this week. Do you want to tell mm-hmm. me about them? Um, yes. Um, I guess when speaking about, you know, speaking on the topic of higher positions in Michigan State University, mm-hmm. um, in, uh, Interim Provost uh, Thomas Yekshilo? Yaitsko. Yaitsko. Um, yes. Okay. Thomas Yeitzko, um, he talked uh, for quite a while, he talked to the General Assembly, both explaining his position because he was saying a lot of people do not know what a provost mm-hmm. is. He was saying that um, he oversees um, all of the non-medical deans. So all of the, I believe, I want to say it was 18 deans. Mm, that might be. I think 18 includes medical. 18 includes medical. So 15, 15 deans as the three medical deans would be under the supervision of someone who's in charge of health yeah. at Michigan State University. Um, but that's a huge part of his job. A lot of the stuff to do with both academics, but also policies at MSU. And policies is something he was talking about with the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was talking about, I guess, new spaces at MSU, both physical and um, social spaces, I suppose. Um, one Like, for example, he wants to have new advising spaces in the MSU union. So I assume that'll be like, obviously, I don't think they're building new spaces, but they're dedicating new spaces mm-hmm. in that building for that. And um, speaking of advising, they also want, um, at least he and others also want university-wide advisors, university-wide advising. So traditionally, advising has been uh, college-specific, like yeah. people receive advisors based on what college they're in. But um, Yechko was saying how, um, according to him, 74% of undergraduate students will change their major at least once while being an undergraduate at MSU. Mm -hmm. So he was saying it makes sense to have um, opportunities for them to meet with advisors that know more than just... So you could have an advisor, you know, all four years, no matter what major, that's just a general. Because, you know, the way it works for me, I have an advisor in James Madison College. I have an advisor in the School of Journalism. But, you know, outside, I don't have sort of a consistent person. This would just be an advisor for, for anything? 
I believe so. Hmm. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if, um, I assume if you wanted this advisor, you could also have a college-specific advisor. I'm not sure how many of these university-wide advisors they would have. I'm not sure if, you know, you would choose one and you'd want to stay with them forever, or if you would choose, okay, I've found my major now, I, I don't need you anymore. Yeah. Um, but um, that was something that was interesting to me because that was something I'd never really considered for a university was to have um, advisors and not based on, you know, majors mm-hmm. or colleges. And what about, uh, you saw another presentation as well, this time from, from MSUPD, right? Yes. Um, this was Detective Jamie Inez um, from the MSUPD. She was presenting... On a topic I'd never heard this word before, but sextortion. Mm. Um, You've probably heard the word extortion before, which is uh, convincing someone to give something, usually money through force or uh, manipulation. Um, But uh, sextortion is doing that almost always online with nude photos or nude videos. And she was explaining how, especially if these are obtained illegally, that's already a crime. Mm -hmm. But there's been many situations where someone is tricked into giving nude videos or nude photos to someone that they think they trust and some people might think like that doesn't sound like something that'd be a huge problem I would never do that but she was saying it's actually a very big deal like in um, from January to September of this year um, MSCPD had 22 reported cases of you know students being in that situation that surprised me especially when she said that's actually quite a low number compared to most years because in the past week um, they had six cases um, Mm. of the 22 what I assume to you know, um, like other RVSM crimes, it's probably you know, vastly underreported compared to what's actually going on. So. Yeah, that's even weirder to think about. Um, the faculty advisor for, a- or one of the faculty advisors for ASMSU, uh, let me find his name. He was saying about how he's worked at four other community, four other, four mm-hmm. other four-year schools, or three other four-year schools, and he was saying that was a problem. Like he'd uh, been confronted with students telling him this issue of this being in this situation. Um, his name is Andrew Peckham. And I thought that was interesting because, yeah, yeah I, I'd never considered, you know, being someone in this situation. And so what did she say, you know, you're getting sextorted. What do you do? Um, she was saying um, a lot of people's first instinct is to delete those conversations they had mm-hmm. with this person, like, you know, over social media. And she was saying as embarrassing as this is, don't delete that because it can be collected as evidence. And mm. that leads to the next step of reporting it to law enforcement. Um, MSUPD is, she was saying MSUPD is a good resource for that um, as they can go through, yeah, they can go through the social media, they can go through bank records if this person tried mm. to, if this person blackmailed you and you did pay, they can go through bank records. Uh, usually that does lead outside of the United States, like surprisingly often, which is complicated as, you know, it's already hard enough to, you know, do things in the United States, but when things are abroad, it's even harder to have jurisdiction in those cases. Um, but in general, um, she said also, if they do, if you do get in this situation, don't pay no matter what they're blackmailing you because they'll probably just extort you further for more money. And she said the safest way of prevention is, yeah, just not taking nude photos or nude videos of yourself. That probably seems like the most obvious piece of advice, but mm-hmm. sometimes the most obvious piece of advice is the most helpful one. But if you are in this situation, her advice is not to, to pay whatever the ransom is? Yes, um, yeah, do not pay. And she said this is especially true. Um, a representative, the Students for Disabilities representative, Jillian mm-hmm. um, Robbins in General Assembly was asking about like, what about in situations where the f- nude photo is actually like made with arti- artificial intelligence and isn't real? 
And Detective Inez was saying, especially don't pay in that case because that's not even you. And even though they haven't had to deal with that huge amount yet, um, she imagines they'll have to deal more with that in the future. And it's still very much um, a terrible thing to do. I didn't um, even think about that too, the, the, that this could be done sort of with like false images through, you know, just AI has become so much more capable and more kind of commercially available in the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I know people have been using AI like that with like celebrities in kind of strange ways. Yeah. It hasn't occurred to me that someone would do that with people they know in real life, but it makes sense. Oh no, I'm giving people ideas. Uh-oh. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, Detective Inez had a lot of interesting things to say. Um, or Zen. Have I been saying... Zen, I apologize. It's a Zen, not Inez. All right, well, you know, um, thank you for coming on the show. If people want more information about this, they can follow. You know, you've done a couple stories already. I'm sure there are many more to come about this at statenews.com. Um, or I guess they can follow your Twitter, too, if you want to. I don't know if you share your work there. Yeah, um, I'm planning to start sharing my work there, as I've been using my Twitter not for work beforehand. But now it's um, at Willow underscore RSS. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter there. And definitely follow the State News account on Twitter. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to hear about ASMSU. I expect when there's new developments, you, you'll be back. Yeah. Thank you very much. I would love to be back. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. And our last segment today is, you know, in other news, MSU made it official. The swim and dive teams are not coming back. This seemingly ends a years-long saga from the controversial decision to cut the team Title IX lawsuit over it and all that passionate advocacy that almost put the swimmers back in the pool. It started in fall 2020 when MSU announced that they'd be cutting the team, and that announcement said that it was because of financial issues brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, ticket sales, that kind of thing were down uh, because they couldn't have in-person events. And I would say what happened next took two different paths. There was some uh, a lot of very loud advocacy directed directly at the university arguing that they should bring the teams back because it was unfair to cut them. They went to countless board of trustees meetings. They, you know, actually met with individual administrators. They wrote letters. Uh, and then another path, I would say, is a group of former swimmers who took to the legal system, and they filed a Title IX lawsuit that argued that MSU's decision to cut the teams, you know, although they cut both a men and women's team, because it was one of the largest programs with female athletes, threw the overall balance of men and women uh, out of proportion in MSU's athletics. And so they were, you know, um, arguing that that put the university in violation of Title IX. Um, you know, that lawsuit went on for about uh, two years. It was filed in 2021 and it wrapped up er- earlier this year. Um, and what it ended with was this major settlement where MSU agreed to undertake this um, gender equity review where a third party would go through and look at every aspect of, of equity. You know, uh, the facilities, the proportion of, you know, dollars given to different groups. You know, are men and female athletes getting the same amount in scholarships, overall participation, and that just wrapped up and found that there were a lot of areas where MSU was out of compliance and that the um, opportunities for men and women in MSU athletics were out of proportion. And you can read all the details of that very complicated document on statenews.com. We have a great story about it. But I'd say that somewhere in that lawsuit is where these two paths come together. And it's the deposition of Bill Beekman. He was the athletic director who was there at the time in 2020 when they announced that they would be cutting the team. And what he said in his deposition sort of changed the public understanding of what uh, actually went on. He said that the decision to cut the team was essentially made in 2019, you know, long before there was COVID, long before it ever mutated in, you know, in Wuhan. Um, And that it wasn't necessarily a financial constraint because of the pandemic. Obviously, it couldn't be. It was too early. It was a facilities concern. MSU didn't want to be paying the millions of dollars it would have to pay to have this expensive pool that they need. 
uh, you know, it's one of the more expensive facilities to operate for a non-revenue sport like swim and dive. And that, you know, uh, admission that was made because of the lawsuit sort of created a new path for the advocates. And since January, when we first revealed that, um, when we reported on those court filings, the advocates have been raising money in these pledges that basically, you know, they go to people who care about this and they say, you can give money to MSU that's conditional. And the condition on the money is you bring back the team. And they actually got in June an actual, you know, hard deal from the university that said if by October 1st you could raise $26.5 million in these pledges, um, you can have the team back. And, and they tried and they went around and they told people, you know, you donate this money and, you know, you're not actually going to have to donate it unless they bring the team back. Um, and it would go to cover those facilities that Beekman had said sort of killed the team in the first place. Um, but we reached the October 1st deadline uh, earlier last week. And MSU, you know, they, the group had raised, I think, a little bit more than $5 million was what they ended up getting to, uh, and that wasn't enough. And um, MSU said that the team, you know, is not coming back. I think no hope for swim and dive was the quote. So that seems to put the final nail on the coffin for swim and dive at MSU. The advocates say that they still see hope that they could somehow repurpose these pledges, go back to donors, and see if there's some other option out there, but you know, um, we talked to MSU for our story, which you can read, statenews.com, uh, and it seemed, I think the quote was, no hope for swim and dive. So this feels like the end. That's all for this week. We'll be back next Thursday with more. Until then, the stories we discussed and many more are available at statenews.com. Thank you to our incredible podcast director, Anthony Brinson, my guests, Jack and Willow, and most of all to you for listening. For the 1909, I'm Alex Walters.